Hey there, Crosswinds family and friends. Uh, we are in our fourth week of our five-week series we're calling Hope Rising. And before we jump into the message, I, I just want to take some time as I have each of these weeks just to pray for you. Uh, I know we can't gather in a, in a big space, but I believe that as, uh, as we pray, that God meets with us in an amazing way in our small spaces. Uh, all over the region and, and literally all over the country and parts of the world. And so I want to pray for you. I, I know that as uh, this pandemic continues, these stay-at-home orders, uh, I was uh, thinking the other day that if I had known when we first heard the orders and thought it was going to be a couple of weeks, uh, that if I knew it was going to be more than that, I would put tally marks on one of the walls of my house <laughs> to sort of know where we're at in this whole thing. But I know it's taking a toll on some people emotionally and and physically and financially, and I know God is working, and so I just want to pray. And so let's pray together and just continue to voice our trust to God and ask him to continue to, to just build us up uh, in the faith, uh, to be strong, and, and to know that it's okay when we doubt to admit that to God and, and to allow him to meet us in our place of doubt and to, and to build us up and, and allow us to, to feel his strength and his peace and his power. And so let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. I thank you that we can come to you with honesty, and that's exactly what you want us to do. That when we cry out to you for help, that you want us to honestly state where we are. If we're wrestling emotionally, we need to say that. We need to be honest with that. We need to ask you for, for the help that we need. Lord, when I think of those who are dealing with physical issues, some of them related to COVID-19, others related to other things, and yet somehow magnified during this period of time. God, would you just meet their needs? Help them as they need to go and, and find care with doctors and, and, and travel uh, to and from hospitals. And Lord, all, all these things become more difficult during this time, but I pray you'd be their strength. I pray you'd give them wisdom. I pray for those who are wrestling with financial issues. And God, you're the great supplier. And, and Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. Uh, strengthen us. Help us, Lord God, be be people who are an example to those around us, even though uh, we're not in places where many can see us, except for those essential workers. But, but God, we, we certainly are still keeping in touch with people. May we be honest. May we be able to give an honest witness of, number one, our ability to be honest with you and others, and then your uh, amazing uh, love and profound power that works in the midst of that honesty. And we give you the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we're in our fourth week of this five-week series, and we've been looking at events that took place nearly 2,000 years ago over a several-week period that literally changed everything for us. We started out looking at Passion Week and Christ's triumphal entry that, of course, ended with Christ uh, crucified, dying on the cross for our sins. We, we celebrated uh, Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday. And then last week, we talked about the ascended life that's offered to each and every one of us who have a relationship with Jesus Christ uh, because he's our ascended Lord and Savior. And what's it mean to live the ascended life? Well, it's, it's a life that, that acknowledges that the scripture says that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you're seated with him in the heavenlies. Now, what's that mean? It means by his power and leading that we're able to live as citizens of heaven while walking here on earth, that we're able to take a piece of heaven into the relationships and circumstances we find ourselves in each and every day of our life. 
Now this week we're going to look at this hope awakening which occurs when the Holy Spirit comes to indwell the believer. And for us to get a a greater understanding of this indwelling of the Spirit, this, this Spirit's work in our life that happens when we receive Christ, I want us to look at Pentecost. Pentecost. Pentecost is significant in both the Old and New Testaments. And actually, the word Pentecost is a Greek name for the festival known in the Old Testament of the Feast of Weeks. Uh, Pentecost in Greek means 50. And it refers to the 50 days that elapsed since the wave offering of Passover to the Feast of Weeks, which celebrates the end of the grain harvest. Now, what's most interesting is the way that the Pentecost is spoken of in, in one of the Old Testament books called Joel and spoken of in the New Testament book of, of Acts. Looking back at the Old Testament and, and Joel's prophecy that was given some 600 years before the events of Acts actually took place, Joel speaks of this promise of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's very interesting is that Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, among his last words on earth, speak of the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, his words are recorded for us. It reads, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, the only real reference to the actual events of Pentecost is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. and verses 1 through 3, this is what we find. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, first, let's just admit, this is a spectacular event. It's an unusual event. It was spoken of 600 years before it happened, but this event that happened nearly 2,000 years is a game changer for every person who says yes to Jesus. That, That at Pentecost, the disciples actually witnessed the birth of the New Testament church in the coming of the Holy Spirit, to indwell believers. The description of of fire and wind that's mentioned here in Pentecost account is also uh, resounds throughout the Old and New Testament. This mighty rushing wind, what's happening there? It's meant to draw our attention to the first Adam where God breathes life into him. And, And this mighty rushing wind at Pentecost speaks of the second Adam, Jesus, breathing spiritual life into those who receive him. The idea of spiritual life as generated by the Holy Spirit is undoubtedly implied in the sound of the wind at Pentecost. And then in both the Old and New Testament, the idea of this, this concept of fire, this, this reality of fire, uh, represents God's presence and his holiness. So these tongues coming down as of fire represents that God's presence is going to be uniquely a part of a believer's life as they enter into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And not only his presence, but his holiness. 
And so the believer's gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost would, would really help us understand that the Spirit will teach and lead us to become more and more like Jesus and that the power that we have is no less than God's presence and holiness activated in our lives as believers. What's notable, too, is that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is immediately followed by a preaching, by the preaching of the message, where 3,000 people come and, and come and be a part of the church on that very day. Now, it's important that we understand that the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, the description of how the Holy Spirit came to those at Pentecost is just that. A believer today does not need to wait to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life at salvation permanently. When a person says yes to Jesus and receives him as Lord and Savior, at that moment, the Spirit of God fills that believer's life permanently. The Holy Spirit empowers the believer to live a Christ-honoring life, but it doesn't guarantee that the believer is going to walk that way. Let me say that again. That the Holy Spirit comes into a believer's life right when they say yes to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit empowers the believer to live a Christ-honoring life, but that does not guarantee that the believer will act this way. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, but doesn't force the believer to walk like Jesus. In fact, a believer needs to walk in the Spirit. And if you've been around the church for many years, you might have heard that language. If you're new, you're probably asking a really good question. What does that mean? What does it mean for a believer to walk in the Spirit? Well, first of all, believers have the indwelling Spirit of Christ. We've already looked at that. That, that when you come to Christ, the Spirit is, is in a very real way a part of your life. And the Holy Spirit assists the believer in prayer. The Holy Spirit uh, leads the believer into righteousness. What's that mean? It means becoming more and more like Jesus. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, as we surrender to his leading, he produces fruit in our life. In short, believers are to submit to the will of God and then walk in the Spirit. The Spirit works in the life of a believer who partners with the Holy Spirit. And I've said this before, and it may seem a little odd to you. This is my practice. It doesn't have to be yours. But every morning when I wake up, I say, good morning, Holy Spirit. Thank you for inviting me to partner with you today. But here's the key. You're the senior partner. Direct me in everything I do and say. You know, lead me, guide me. I'm dependent upon you. Such a person who yields to the Spirit is said to walk in the Spirit. Now, how does the Bible, how does the Bible use this word walk? Now, one of the ways that the Bible often uses the word walk is as a metaphor for our practical daily living. That's why when we look at our relationship with Jesus Christ, that we often will refer to it as a journey. We're walking with Jesus. It's our daily practical life. We are to walk in our life with Christ, making forward progress. Now, by the way, we call this sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus. And it's really a messy process. 
not because of God, but because of us. As we lay our hurts and our habits and our hang-ups before the Lord, and he begins to reveal things to us, and we work through them by the power of the Spirit, at times it can feel quite messy. In fact, it's only really possible through the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. See, the Bible tells us that we receive new life in the Spirit, and we're to continue to live in the Spirit each and every day of our life. So it's not as if we say yes to Jesus and then go along living with the same powerless reality we were in before Christ. We say yes to Jesus, and then we're able to walk in the power and leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, like all relationships, it's something we learn. Like all relationships, it's something we, we become more and more comfortable with as we walk with him. See, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? To walk in the Spirit means we surrender control of our lives to him. We, we follow his leading, and we continue to allow him to influence our steps. And you say, well, how does that happen? What does that mean? What's that look like? Well, first of all, God's primary way, his chosen way more times than not to prune us, to make us more like Jesus is through his word, the Bible. And so as we approach God's word, it's us taking a moment and really asking the spirit, help us as we read the word of God, as we seek to master the word of God, that it would master us. I heard it expressed this way recently. As I study God's word, God, may your word study me. Help my thinking change. See, I don't know about you, but the, the Bible has taught me to think about words like love differently. Like before I came to Christ, and even to be honest with you, as I've walked with him, I've been tempted at times of trying to put God in the box of how I want to define love. You ever tried to do that? But as I walk and say, Spirit, teach me, grow me, what I learn is, is that God defines love. And he gives the parameters of what love looks like and, and what's really loving. And I say, Spirit, help me submit to that understanding of who God is. Because in the end, it's not just about knowing God's word. I want to know God's word so I can know him. And I can become like Jesus. And I can become that person whom God has created me to be. So I want to take some time. If, if you have your Bibles, if you're following along on your phone, maybe an app, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 5. And we find in Galatians chapter 5 a description of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. In fact, Paul writes in Galatians 5 what it really means to walk with the Spirit. Look at Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's declaring that the believer no longer needs to be under the civil law in Scripture and the ceremonial law. I don't want to get into the weeds here, but I think it's important we look at this because I believe that one of the number one reasons that people misunderstand what a Christian believes, one of the great stumbling blocks, if you will, to Christian doctrine, is a misunderstanding of what parts of the Old Testament apply to a, a believer's life today and how they apply to our life. When we look at the civil law in Scripture, it doesn't apply to a believer's life today. In other words, the civil law is for a particular people for a, for a very particular time. 
the Israelites. It, 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 was their, it, was their, it was their law that was set to, to keep them as one people and, and what was right and what was wrong. And, and it, it had some really, really strict punishments sometimes. And, and it's descriptive. We learn through looking at the civil law today how important living the way that God would have us live really is and how destructive it is when we don't. But I'm not under the civil law today. That was for the Israelites then. It isn't for me now. The other law that isn't, doesn't apply directly to my life is the ceremonial law. Over and over again in the Old Testament is these pictures, is the institution of the sacrifice system. And so I've had people ask me the question, if you're, if you're a believer in God's word, why don't you make sacrifices anymore? Well, because Jesus is the one true offering. He's the one true sacrifice. What he did on the cross was a sacrifice once and for all. I don't need any other sacrifices as a New Testament believer, but I learn from them. I read about the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, and I see the importance of what Jesus did. I see the consequences of sin. But Paul says what? We're no longer under the civil law. We're no longer under the ceremonial law. But we are, however, under the God's moral law. That as we read through the Old Testament on through the New Testament, by the way, it's one Bible, as we read through the scriptures, we find that, that God's moral law is still in play. We're still not to lie. We're not to covet. We're not to commit adultery. That we want to be holy as God is holy. So, so jump down to verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Galatians 5.5 5 is so important. It's so important that we wrap our mind around this verse. The believers can't produce perfect righteousness. We can't do it in our own self-will. We can't do it by our own effort. Christ-like righteousness, being like Jesus, is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Such a life is not completed, by the way, until either we die and see Jesus face to face or he comes back. <laughs> the, the process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, like begins when we say yes to Jesus and doesn't end until we see him face to face. It, it's a process. And for some, they fall into the trap of making it a journey of legalism setting up their own sort of civic law, civil laws, their own type of ceremonial laws. And, and Paul said, no, 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 you've been set free in Jesus so you can truly be free. That becoming like Jesus isn't legalism. It's not supposed to be so burdensome that it brings us down. Because in Christ, remember the presence of the Holy Spirit, what does it bring? The presence of God and his holiness upon us. Our journey to become like Jesus then isn't to earn anything. It's to become who God has called us and created us to be. It's to allow us to be in that place where, where the very work of the Spirit can bring God's peace and power in our life. So we yield to him. Look at verses 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
It's talking about conquering the flesh. What is the flesh? It's, it's the old fallen nature under the control of sin. It's what separated us from God. And you say, well, when Jesus came and paid the price for that sin, why is it still in play? Well, because we're still here. We're not in paradise yet. That Jesus hasn't come or we haven't gone to be with him. That, that well done, good and faithful servant, the work completed, it, it is not accomplished. In fact, Paul in, in one of his letters says, follow me as I follow this path to Jesus, this, this becoming more like him. I haven't already achieved it yet. But follow me as I press on to this, this mark. And that's the life we're living right now. And so we walk in the Spirit by yielding to the Spirit, by allowing Him to lead us and empower us. Remember, to walk in Scripture regularly represents a pattern of conduct. And so when we say we want to walk in the Spirit, it means we want to live as one who truly is a follower of Jesus Christ. We don't say yes to Jesus and go along the same path we were walking before we came to him. We say yes to Jesus, and he invites us into a whole new life where he helps us overcome the, the, the barriers and the, and the bondage and, and all the stuff that happened to us up to that point. And, and he gives us the strength to make it through all the difficulties that still lie ahead. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And as we allow the Spirit to lead us and direct us through God's word and, and through those gentle nudges of God's voice day in and day out, we get to walk in power and freedom. When we don't, the picture is quite, quite bleak. Galatians 5, 19, first part of verse 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, Sorcery, anonymity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And then Paul probably figures he's mentioned quite enough. He says, and things like these. Then he gives us a picture of what does it look like? What are the qualities that come into a person's life when they're walking with the Spirit? Galatians 5, through the first part of verse 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm guessing that you're like me, and I would rather have my life characterized by the second list than the first. Like, I don't want my life to look like any of these things that are mentioned in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. I want my life to, to be characteristic of the things that are mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It's interesting Galatians 5.19 tells us that if we want those things, that bad list, let's call it a bad list, if we want those things, it's really easy. It's the work of the flesh. When you do life on your own, you, you just sort of naturally will gravitate to one of those things, if not many of them. But when we trust in the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, what happens, those characteristics, those good characteristics, are the fruit of the Spirit working in our life. In other words, it's not something we can do by our self-will. It's not something we can work so hard we're going to become those things. It's as we yield to the Spirit and then do our part of following his leading, knowing the words so we can know God, follow his leading, that we're able to have our lives characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
I mean, the fruit of the Spirit. My wife is naturally a gentle person. She really is. And so when I see that in her life, I don't necessarily attribute that to God. Short is God, but, but let me tell you something. When I'm gentle, that's the Spirit. Like, I'm not naturally a gentle person. I know that about myself. And so when gentleness flows out of me, it humbles me because I know it's God working in me. I've said this before. Let me say it again. I, I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm growing. I'm becoming more like Jesus, and it is a messy process at times. But it's such a blessing to be invited by the Spirit of God every morning to journey with him. Galatians 5, 24 through 25 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Believers who walk in the Spirit are united with him and bearers of the Spirit's fruit throughout our lives. So let me summarize a bit. A Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit when we say yes to Jesus, when we enter into that salvific relationship with him. However, this doesn't mean that the believer is walking with the Spirit. In order for us to walk with the Spirit, we acknowledge that we are filled with the Spirit, and then we surrender ourselves to him. The Holy Spirit really brings into our life this hope awakening, this awakening of who we're meant to be in Jesus. What really keeps us from this journey is sin. And so I want to encourage you, keep a short account with God. Be honest with him. As we become more like Jesus from the beginning to throughout this process, there's going to be times we struggle with those hurts. There's times we're going to struggle with those habits and hang-ups in our life. We just need to be honest about that. And God forgives us. First John 1, 9, I love it. It tells us to confess our sins to God, and he'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse us. He'll refresh us. He'll take us a step further in our journey when we're honest with him. And by the way, God doesn't forgive us because he's lenient about sin. If he was simply lenient about sin, then he wouldn't have his very own son die in our stead. No, 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 he's merciful. He's loving, he's caring. And so we can come to him in our time of need and just be honest before him. See, obedience and repentance are the pathway to walking in the spirit. And God gives us victory in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation at all will seize us except that which is common to everybody. But God is faithful. He's not going to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when we are tempted, give us a way to stand above it. The victory. And so there are two verses in my prayer time that I pray over myself, like daily. <laughs> I do. If there's something I need to confess to God, I just claim 1 John 1, 9. God, I'm, I'm being honest before you. I'm not... I'm not making light of it, but I'm just asking for your forgiveness. And I just thank him for forgiving me. I know he will. Not because he's lenient, but because he's loving and merciful. And he cleanses me. And I say, God, I know you can give me the power to overcome this, to overcome this habit, to overcome this hang-up. I'm weak, but in you I am strong. Without your spirit, I, can, I can't do any of these things. But, but the very, God, your very spirit indwells me. Your presence is in my life in a very real way. Your holiness has covered me. Teach me your word and help me walk in it. 
I, I don't want, to, I don't want the, 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 the works of the flesh to be evident in my life. I want the fruit of the Spirit to flow from my life. So I encourage you, come to Christ. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior. In so doing, allow the very Spirit of God to indwell you. Allow God's presence to cover you. Allow His holiness to cover you. And every day, partner with the Spirit. I need to be reminded of that, not just every morning, by the way, throughout the day, just to stop and do a gut check. Spirit, am I walking and just expecting you to keep up or or am I keeping in step with you? Are you leading my day? Am I, am I trying, to, trying to define things and then trying to fit you into it, God? Or am I learning what, what life looks like from your eyes and allowing you to define these things and allowing me to conform not to the world but to you, Jesus? I've had people ask me, why do saved people not have spiritual power? I think that's a good question. Saved people don't have spiritual power because they haven't yielded to the Spirit. They haven't plugged in to the Spirit, so to speak. For a person to come to Christ and receive the power of God in their life, they don't just say yes to Jesus. They say yes to His Spirit working in them every day. Then what happens? heavenly fruit, peace, patience, faithfulness, confidence, assurance that God is loving, he's trustworthy. And I want to speak to you directly as we wrap up here this time in God's word. If you find yourself this morning feeling powerless, I don't want to I was going to say I don't want to prod, but I guess I'm going to do that anyway. I don't do it to be mean. I do it because I love you and I know God loves you. If you feel yourself being powerless, I ask you, have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? And if you haven't, won't you take that step right now? And if you have, you don't need to be honest with me. You're, You're not even in this room with me right now, but be honest with God. Are you yielding to his spirit? Are you learning what it means to walk with him? And when you do, be ready for the resources of heaven to flood your life, for you to be blessed so you can bless others. That's hope awakening. I hope all of us will choose to enter into that this morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for just the the encouragement we receive from your word, the power that we receive from your word, that as we come and approach it and ask that your spirit will will teach us how through it to know you better and to, to keep in step with you, what an amazing work you do in our life. You heal us of hurts, God. You 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 deliver us from hang-ups. You, you help us overcome habits. 
And I admit that sometimes it's instantaneous, but many times it's a messy process. But, but the good news is when we say yes to Jesus, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, your presence and your holiness covers us. So it's not a matter of earning anything. It's a matter of, uh, of simply out of joy, knowing for freedom's sake you've set us free. And so we say yes to you. We know our eternity is secure in your hands. But as we say yes to you every day, what happens is the practical reality of that freedom impacts the situations we find ourselves in. We no longer need to focus on the difficulties, the troubles. We get to focus on you. And you fill us with your power. And you unleash us to share your love and peace to those around us. Bring peace into the mess of our lives, God. And use us to bring your peace into the chaos around us. Thank you for this amazing work in your precious, loving, and merciful name.